Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 8, as we are continuing on in this glorious epistle, and we have reached the mountain peak this morning. Romans chapter 8, we're going to be considering one verse this morning. That should come as a surprise to absolutely none of you. But oh, the glory that this verse holds, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word that you have given to us as a good gift that through your living word, by the working of your spirit, we might come to know you, our God, that we would hear your voice. Lord, that we would even be transformed, brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, brought from death to life. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would accomplish all of your good purposes through your word among us this morning. Pray that the Lord Jesus would be glorified. Pray for myself as I proclaim your words, that the word of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that verse was new to none of you. We have arrived at what is probably the most familiar verse in the New Testament. It's at least right up there. It's an incredible verse. It is a life-giving, hope-giving verse. It's a verse that should be the lens through which we view our entire lives and everything that happens in our lives. We should, we should have this verse stand between our eyes and those things. But Romans 8.28 has also often been badly abused. We hear about a bad thing happening that has a good outcome to it. And we say, well, that's the promise, isn't it? All things work together for good. Someone's in the midst of intense suffering or grief, and we hit them with a trite, well, you know, all things are going to work together for good. Don't be too sad. But to, to use the verse in that way is to misunderstand the verse. I recently read a story of, of George Whitfield, the, the great evangelist of colonial America and England in the mid-1700s. Uh, the one who, who, along with Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, the Lord really used to, to be the, the spearhead of the Great Awakening. Came across a story of him, though, traveling with a friend and traveling on horseback, and they met a widow who had numerous children who had lost everything. The landlord had come, had taken all of her furniture away. She was living at this time with her children uh, in a home that had no furniture whatsoever. And Whitfield immediately gave her all the money to pay her rent, to to pay the back rent and get uh, all of her furniture back. And as they traveled on, his friend looked at him and said, you can't afford to do that. You don't have enough money to be doing things like that. And Whitfield said to him, when God brings a case of need before us, it's so that we may relieve it. Well, as the two men travel a little further down the road, all of a sudden a, a, a robber comes upon them at gunpoint and demands all their money from them. Well, Whitfield doesn't have any anymore. And his friend gives over all his money to this robber who then 
takes off and Whitfield, of course, turns to his friend and says, see, it's better that she had my money than he had my money. They resume their travels again towards their destination, and, and it's not long before the robber comes back to them again, this time demanding Whitfield's coat. It being a chilly day that day, Whitfield asked the robber, can I take your old tattered coat in the place of mine then at the very least so I don't freeze to death out there? And the robber just decides, okay, takes off his, his beat-up tattered old coat, gives it to Whitfield, takes Whitfield's coat, and off the road he goes again. And the two men begin traveling again. Well, they travel a good distance, and for a third time, they see the robber coming towards them again, this time spurring his horse as fast as it will travel, galloping toward them, and they think, okay, this time he's come to kill us. It's all over. And so they spur their horses and take off, and they actually make it to a small town before the robber reaches them, and he ends up having to turn away and end his pursuit of them and go back to wherever it is that he came from. And it's at that moment that Whitfield discovers in the pockets of this old tattered coat, not only all the money he'd stolen from them, but about a hundred times that amount is in his coat. It's a great story. That's Romans 8.28 at work, right? Well, yeah, I guess so. But what if Whitfield hadn't asked for the coat, hadn't been so bold as to do that, and they just lost all their money that day? What, would we still quote Romans 8.28 in that scenario? What if he had just decided to kill them? Would we quote Romans 8.28 when perhaps one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived is senselessly killed over a little bit of money? What about things like terminal illness? What about things like unexpected death, divorce, abuse, church disputes? Does Romans 8.28 still apply to all of those situations as well? What about David's years of running from wicked King Saul who was seeking to take his life from him? Was God at work when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered? Was he at work in the unfaithfulness and the repeat adultery of Hosea's wife or at work when John the Baptist was suddenly beheaded? Does Romans 8.28 still apply in all of those situations? Well, the answer is a resounding yes, it does. Yes, it does. The correct interpretation of this or any other scripture necessarily means it's true for every Christian all the time in every circumstance. If it doesn't work when the sun's out or when the storm has come, then we've missed the meaning. We've gotten something wrong. If our interpretation of this verse doesn't work in all circumstances, then we have misunderstood it. About 2,000 years ago, there, there were these ancient inhabitants of Peru that made a series of strange hills and valleys. They went on for hundreds and hundreds of yards with abrupt stops and sharp turns, some, some smooth turns, Nobody could really make sense of what this was. It didn't appear to have any kind of specific pattern, any identifiable pattern. So for many centuries, it was believed that what these were were ancient remnants of some sort of irrigation system that nobody could figure out, or perhaps some sort of mystical religion, that they must have had some meaning, some purpose, but nobody knows what it is. Well, in 1939, the mystery was solved. An American professor was studying these mysterious creations, but he decided to observe them from high above in an airplane. And when he flew over them in an airplane to observe them, these seemingly random hills and valleys were actually revealed to be enormous drawings, 2,000-year-old 
drawings of birds and animals and warriors. These ancient people, they had created these works of art that they couldn't even appreciate. They couldn't even see them. Nobody could see them on the planet at that time. The reason they couldn't see it is they didn't have the right perspective to be able to see it. From the ground, they were confusing and they were strange, especially to those who came after. But from the heavens, they were revealed to be really amazing works of art. Well, that's how it is with the truth that's presented here in Romans 8:28. In order to see the glory, the beauty, the art that God is working in his creation and in our lives, we need a higher perspective than this earth gives to us. From this earth it looks strange. From this earth it looks confusing and random and pointless and wrong. Romans 8:28 is taking us to a higher altitude to look at our lives not from an earthly perspective, but from a heavenly one. And so let's hear these words again. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So before we can talk about what this verse means, it's important for us to know what this verse does not mean. Romans 8.28 is not a detailed explanation for suffering. There's no real explanation here. Paul is not providing for us the quick answer to why there is suffering in the world. It's, it's, it's not a band-aid that we can just stick on the suffering believer when they're struggling. It's not, it's not something we can just tritely say to them and that's going to make them feel all better in the midst of it. This verse doesn't even attempt to give an explanation. It just tells us something about how it is that God operates. And how it is that God operates is often confusing to us. Does it bother you to hear statements like this? Proverbs 25, 2. It's the glory of God to conceal things. Isaiah 45, 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Ecclesiastes eleven five. As you do not know the way a spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Again, the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the, heaven, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." In other words, even though we often feel entitled to answers from God about why certain things are transpiring in our lives and in this earth, we don't even have the capacity to grasp God's infinite mind. We demand an explanation from him when we're not even capable of processing it. We, we, we can't understand the way he intervenes, the way he moves, the way he rules over the events of history or our individual lives. That's why Paul is going to, to write just a couple chapters later in chapter 11 of Romans, verse 33, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. One mark of our growing up in the faith is that we stop making demands that God give us an accounting for why he does what he does. We trust him. We don't continually demand an answer from him. The truth is, in Scripture, we don't often get answers to questions that begin with the word why that are directed to God. Even in Scripture, when those questions are asked, God generally chooses 
instead of giving a direct answer to the question, to reveal something about himself, to reveal something of his nature. He never feels the need to explain himself. He never feels the need to defend himself. When Job demands an explanation from God, how does God respond? Well, he didn't give Job the answer Job was looking for, did he? He didn't give him the answer that we're looking for when we read Job also. God, why did this happen? There's so much speculation that goes on. Why? Why? Well, God doesn't tell Job that, and he doesn't tell us that. But here's what he does do. He reminds Job of who he is and what he has done. And then he says to Job, who exactly do you think you are to question me? We'll see it again in the very next chapter of Romans, chapter 9. Paul presents some very difficult truths, truths that are very hard for prideful man to swallow, and Paul responds to the critics' questions, accusations. Paul, that's not fair if what you're saying is true. Paul's response is not to explain, no, if you think about it, it really is fair, it really is just. No, that's not what he does. He responds by saying, who do you think you are to question God? The only explanation you're going to get is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans 8.28 does not explain why we endure suffering, nor does it promise that we're going to be shielded from suffering. It's not not some kind of lucky Christian rabbit's foot that we we can rub and it's going to make all of our problems go away. We can superstitiously quote it and it'll ward off evil from us. But many people think that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work like that. This statement in Scripture is supposed to mean that in my life, and so when things don't work out, when suffering comes into our lives, they become disillusioned, and they even walk away from God, all because they are misreading this glorious promise. Romans 8.28 is also not a prohibition against sorrow and grief. Sorrow, frustration, loss, confusion... Doubt, grief, pain, these, are, these experiences are common to all of us. This verse isn't telling us not to feel those things, not even to express those things. This verse is not meant to be a magic bullet that makes all of those things go away. We didn't see that demonstrated in the earthly ministry of Jesus, did we? He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. You're not embarrassing God in your grief and in your confusion, and in your questions, and in your suffering. You're not showing a lack of faith when you grieve or you weep over loss or pain, and you're not frustrating him when you have questions. Also, Romans 8.28 is not an excuse for becoming placent. This verse is not teaching a fatalistic view of our lives. God's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, so I can just sit back and let it all play out. That's a deeply misguided view. This verse and no other verse in Scripture is ever going to teach you to be complacent in your Christian life. We are called to run the race. We are called to bear the cross. We are called to fight the good fight, to glorify God with whatever it is that he has put into our hands and to do that with all of our might. Finally, Romans 8.28 is not a promise of comfortable living. God has not obligated himself here to give us pain-free, trouble-free lives here on this earth. In fact, Scripture's clear. 
It will be quite the opposite for the believer. It's true of all people, and it's even more true of the believer, as we've seen as we've gone through Romans. Well, what these four misapplications of this verse are attempting to do is to try and make sense of twisting hills and valleys on this earth from earth's perspective. And they can never make sense of it. We can never make sense of it from earth's perspective. We have no hope of seeing its beautiful design. What we need is not an an earthly perspective of our own human reason. We need the heavenly perspective that only God can provide. And so Paul in this verse is providing something of that heavenly perspective for us. He's giving us a glimpse of the sovereign purpose of God for us. And What we discover here is not the exact details, but something far better than the exact details. It's the promise of God. And friends, this is so much better than if God would just map out for you the exact details of, here's what what my plan is in doing this and doing this. Here's what's better, and it's what the Lord gives to us. It is his promise that he is sovereignly at work in all things to accomplish his good purposes. And even more than that, that we are included in those good purposes. This verse provides tremendous security for the believer. So let me quickly now point out what this verse reveals to us about God's purpose. First, Romans 8.28 reveals the certainty of God's purpose. Look at these first words here. And we know. And we know. Paul doesn't say, and we think, and we're pretty sure, and the odds are, he doesn't say, and we feel. That's the guide we usually operate off of, isn't it, as humanity? What we feel dominates everything. No, he says, we know. There is, friends, a huge difference between feeling and knowing. In fact, what we feel may well be the very opposite of what's true. We might feel like God's not in control. We might be afraid because we look at the events of the world around us or or the events of our lives and it feels like things are out of control and things are hopeless. We might feel like God doesn't love us. We know that God is love, but when it comes to me, I know that I'm pretty bad. We might feel at times like God has abandoned us, left us on our own. Those feelings can be overwhelming. Those feelings can, can overpower the truths that we know. I can't tell you how many times that I talk to people and the common thing I say is, you have to preach the gospel to yourself all day long. Because it leaks. That truth leaks out of us because our feelings are pushing it out. And we begin to believe lies You know, any of these things, God is not in control. God doesn't love me anymore. God has abandoned me. God God is paying me back for something that, that is covered by the cross of Christ. These are accusations against God Almighty. It's not a small thing, friends. In this fallen world, as fallen human beings, we need to recognize something. Our feelers are fallen too. We're often wrong in the way that we feel. Our feelings are often not in keeping with reality. 
We often feel in ways that are contrary to the revealed Word of God in Scripture. Our perception of things is frequently wrong. And so Paul says to us, we know. We know. In the New Testament, there's there's a couple different Greek words translated as know or knowledge or knowing. What is gnosko? One of the most common ones. It means to know something through personal experience. So it's a word Paul uses in Philippians 3 verse 10 when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings. In other words, he's saying, I want to know by means of personal experience these things. I want to experience his power. I want to experience, I want to share in his sufferings. It's the same thing a wife means to her husband when she says to him, I don't know if you love me anymore. And the husband says, of course I love you. Remember, 26 years ago, we stood there at the altar, we joined hands, and I told you I loved you that day, and I made these promises to you. See the ring on my hand, of course I love you. And the wife says, no, I need to know that you love me. Well, what she doesn't want is for him to recite their wedding vows in that moment. She doesn't need to be reminded of the date of their wedding. She wants to experience that love. She wants to know that love. That's gnosko. It's knowledge that comes through experience. But Paul uses a different word here. The word's ido. It's a knowledge that's gained not so much by personal experience, but by a knowledge that is gained through propositional truth. So so you don't experience that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You just learn it. It's just a true thing that you learn, and you know 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. Lord willing, you'll never spend a day in your life where you really doubt that. Although in our culture, that very scenario is being doubted. I can't figure out the formula, but math has become racist in some way. True story. This is something you just know is true. You have learned that it is true. It's propositional truth. It's true. It's always going to be true. It doesn't matter how we feel. That's why the idea of someone denying 2 plus 2 equaling 4 is ludicrous to us. This word that Paul uses here literally means you just can see what's plainly available to see right in front of you. That's the word Paul uses here in Romans 8, 28. He's not saying we know that God's in in control because we've personally experienced something. He's not saying we know that God's in control because we can just feel him working things out for our good. No, Paul is elevating our perspective. That's the way that we think. It's the way we see things from the earth. What have I experienced? What do I feel? No, Paul elevates our perspective. We know that God is in control because God said so. That's why we know. That's why this knowledge is unshakable. God is in control because he said he is. It doesn't matter what we experience or how we interpret our experiences. It doesn't matter what we feel God is at work for our good, Christian. He is at work for your good at all times. And we know this because it is impossible for God to lie. Oh, friends, that's better. 
Second, Romans 8.28 reveals the sovereignty of God's purposes. Again, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We're going to come back to that statement about those who love God in a moment here. There's something we need to know about the language that Paul uses as he writes this. The New American Standard translates this verse, and we know that God causes all things to work together. That's the right sense. That's the right sense of, of the way the Greek is worded. Literally, the Greek reads like this. We know now that those loving God, all things, God works together for good. In other words, and, and this is such gloriously good news, the purposes of God depend not on you and me, not on our ability to do the right things and not do the wrong things and make the right decisions. No, they depend on God himself. God causes all things. God's purposes are not dependent on our wisdom and strength our perceptiveness, our diligence, our desire. You just take a deep breath of relief right there. I, I go through my days so often with this very truth just sort of leaking out of me and being pressed out by what I feel that tells me I've got to be smarter, I've got to work harder, I've got to think better. No, God's purposes are not dependent on us. God is the one who sovereignly controls and carries out every one of his good purposes. That's what Paul is telling us here. That is glorious news. Romans 28 also reveals the comprehensiveness of God's purpose. Paul says, all things work together for good. All things. God causes all things to work together for good. What does all mean? Everything. God causes everything always to work together for good. Everything always to fulfill his purposes. John MacArthur says this in his commentary, All things is utterly comprehensive, having no qualifications or limits. Neither this verse nor its context allows for restrictions or conditions. All things is inclusive in the fullest possible sense. Paul is not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. He's rather attesting to the fact that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his children, even the worst things, and turns those things into pieces of his purpose. That's a glorious truth. It's a glorious thing. In this life, though, we don't have the vantage point to see that, do we? But we can know. We can know it. We don't have the vantage point to see it, which means we're probably not going to feel it most of the time, but we can know it because God has spoken. And what God has spoken is that if we are in Christ, He is at work for our good in all things. Friends, we can stand on that. We could preach that to ourselves. Fourth, Romans 8.28 reveals the connectedness of God's purpose. All things work together for good. Work together. The, the Greek word synergo 
It's where we get the word synergy. It, it means to, to help, to, to be a fellow worker, to, to work together in cooperation. It's, it's the combination of two or more things that has a greater total effect than the sum of their individual effects. So if you've ever made cookies or brownies, and you chose to eat each individual ingredient, some were going to taste real good, and some were going to taste real bad. But those bad-tasting things, when combined together, make something far greater than they are on their own. Now, here, here's what this means. No single event in your life, Christian, can be considered in isolation. No one thing, no, no glorious thing, not the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. Can you just pluck that apart and consider it all on its own? Richard Exley wrote about a pastor who had returned to his pulpit only a few weeks after his son had committed suicide. And in that brief time, stepping into his pulpit, which must have been so painful, so difficult, his text that morning was Romans 8, 28. This grieving pastor, suffering grief I can't even imagine, looked at his people and this is what he said. I cannot make my son's death fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize I only see in part. I only know in part. It's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of our great ships are made of steel. If you were to take any single part of that vessel, be it a steel plate from the hole or steel from its rudder, and throw it into the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilder is finished, when that last plate has been riveted in place, that massive steel ship floats. And he concluded by saying this, taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. Thrown into the sea of Romans 8.28, it will sink. But when the divine shipbuilder has finally finished, even this tragedy will build together God's unsinkable purpose. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing trite about that statement from that brother. It's a statement born out of deep faith in the midst of unimaginable grief. And friends, he is right. He's right. God will cause even the worst things we experience in this life to work together to accomplish his good purposes for us. That's where hope lives. That's where strength to continue on is found. But Paul doesn't say that all things are good. Some things are devastatingly bad, not good. He says all things work together for good. There's a huge difference between those two statements. All things are good and all things work together for good. We can trust God, though. We can take him at his word. Even though we don't feel it, even though we can't see it and would be hopeless to see it from this vantage point, even though our minds can't fathom it, that is his promise to us. That all things, everything, all the time is working together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's the promise. 
But this promise isn't for everyone. It's a conditional promise. Romans 8.28 reveals the condition of this promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's the condition. The promise is only for certain people. This is the most glorious promise you've ever heard in your whole life, but it's only for a certain group of people. It is those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So who are these people? Is Paul saying here that, that in my flesh, if I feel my love for God waning, that that affects how much God is working things out for my good? When I'm reeling, when I'm struggling, when I'm not feeling it, when I can't sense a call according to his purpose on my life, I don't know what that means. Does it mean God, that this promise isn't for me? No, friends, these titles are just descriptions of Christians. These are Christians Paul's talking about here. As one pastor said, and I can't remember who I heard said it, but it didn't come from me. When you hear something really good, you know, like, that came from somebody. Those who love God describes the Christian from our perspective, while those who are called according to his purpose describes the Christian from God's perspective. This is just two descriptions of the Christian. It's the ones who love God, and it's the one that God has called to himself. That's who this promise is for. So what Paul is saying now, right now, as we saw last week, it's tied to what Paul's already been saying throughout Romans chapter 8. To become a recipient of this promise, you must be an heir of God. You must be a child of God. You must be adopted by the Holy Spirit of God. You must be in Christ. This promise is not for those who are still cemented in in their solidarity with Adam under the, the reign and the rule, slaves to sin and death. All things are not working out for their good. It is not for those who stand under the con condemnation of God. All things are not working out for their good. It's for those who are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, then this promise is yours. You can know it. It is not presumptuous to know it. It is not presumptuous to stand on it. It is right to stand on it. When God has revealed truth plainly in his word, it is wrong to deny it. It is arrogant to deny it. We live in a community where there's a large community of people, so as not to put too fine a point on it, let's call them Amish people, to say to have any assurance of your salvation is an arrogant thing. We can never have that. Friends, I'll tell you what's arrogant. Not believing the promises of God. You can know this. You can know this. You can know that he is at work in all things for your good. And as Paul has shown us in Romans 8, the reason we can know this and the reason our verse today starts with the word and is because of what he told us. In verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're weak. Our feelings push out the truth that we know. 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know. The Holy Spirit who dwells in you, Christian, means you can know this. He makes you to know this. He reveals this truth to you. So no, the promise of Romans 8.28 is not for this world. It's not for everyone. Unbelievers should not think that God is at work in all things for their good. It is simply not true. Only the believer, only the one who has become the child of God through adoption can experience the full measure of God's gracious providence. This promises only for those who are in Christ. This promise is a product of our union with Christ. That's why this promise is true. It's all the things Paul has been telling us all the way through Romans so far, culminating in this glorious mountain peak truth. This is true because of all of that. And Paul's going to expand on that in the next verses. Verse 29 begins with the word for. So he's revealed this truth on the front end He gives us Romans 8, 28, and then he says, and again, here's why we know this is true. Those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a sure thing. If you are in Christ, he is at work for your good in all things because he has assured your glorification. Oh, we can stand on this promise. But you might not see it now. You might not feel it now. So often the hills and valleys on this earth do not make sense. But one day, and this is the promise, you will see it. You will see it one day. Maybe not in this life. The promise of Romans 8.28 is that from the vantage point of eternity, you will see how God was working everything for your good. Friends, there's no more glorious truth that we could hold on to in this dark world than that one. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials. Oh, that that, that this truth would be the lenses we view all of life through. What a gift of God it is to reveal this truth to us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Lord, we who were rebellious sinners have now been reconciled to you through the death of your son who came and lived a sinless life in our place, on our behalf, who bore the curse of sin, for us, who bore the condemnation that we deserved, who rose gloriously, victoriously over sin and hell and the grave, who has brought us into relationship with you, God the Father Almighty, whereby we are your children and by your spirit who dwells in us, we cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, I pray for your people this morning. Lord, as we go through this life, as we face the trials and the distractions of this world, would you cause us by your Spirit 
to be reminded of your glorious promises to us, to stand on them, to proclaim them to ourselves, to proclaim this truth to the world that is in desperate need. This world so desperately needs to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, I do pray for anyone who's hearing my voice that doesn't know you, particularly those that, that think they do, but whose hearts in reality are far from you. Pray, Lord, by your Spirit, you would call their name. That by your Spirit, they would love you and be called to yourself. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and for your power to save. We rest in you and we trust in you. We pray that you would be glorified in us and through us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.